Good morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1? While you're finding your place, let me say a few words by way of introduction. A few years ago, I was in Washington State where I was stationed during some time in the Navy, and uh, one of my colleagues uh, and I were driving for an appointment, and he asked me some things about my religious faith, particularly my views on what happens to people who've never heard the gospel in faraway places in the world. And when I shared with him what scripture teaches about how people must hear the gospel in order to believe, he told me that it was a very heartless thing and that he was shocked that I would believe that kind of thing. And it stuck with me at that moment. It didn't make me feel good to have that response, but it made me reflect on uh, something about our experience as Christians, that though As Christians, we've come to know with certainty that the gospel we've received is true and the scriptures we have are the word of God. When we engage with the world, we're often challenged in ways that cause us to wonder, is this right? Is this true? We're we're challenged in ways that sow lingering doubts. Not to put it too forcefully, But there's a sense in which we live in the midst of a philosophical storm, a whirlwind of worldviews. And every day when we go outside, when we turn on the radio, when we drive down the road and look at the billboards, when we engage with friends and colleagues, we're challenged in our faith. We see alternate ways of viewing the world, alternate philosophies that we're presented with, and they suggest to us that maybe there's a better way, maybe there's another way. Well, we're not the first generation of Christians to face this problem. The Apostle John wrote his first letter to a church that was facing a very similar problem. It was a church where they had had false teachers come in and try to lead them to embrace some other message. These false teachers, whatever they were teaching, John doesn't tell us explicitly, had unsettled the church and they had ultimately departed, not having led it astray, but perhaps taking some people with them. Those who remained, remained because they continued to hold firm to the gospel. But their faith was unsettled in some ways. They were caused to doubt. And so John wrote to this church to encourage them to reaffirm the gospel that he had at first proclaimed to them and to encourage them to hold firm to that gospel and to know that it's true. So if you found your place with me, would you follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 in 1 John, and we'll read to verse 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word, that you would implant it in our hearts, that we may become doers of your word, not mere hearers and enliven our faith through your word that we might trust you more fully and look uh, to your son with confidence 
that the word that was preached to us that we received is a word that we can rely upon. It's a word that we can trust. It's a word that we can build our lives upon in the hope of the eternal life that you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a few weeks ago I began to study this, this, um, this letter with the high schoolers in our church. And I asked them after the first week to go home and read through the entire letter in one sitting and to come back and give me their feedback and their response. And when they came back, they said, in a lot of ways, it was straightforward. It was simple. But they noted that it was also repetitious, that it was uh, kind of a circular um, letter. It wasn't like Paul's writing where, if you think of Romans, he builds upon an argument from one step to another that you can trace the logic very clearly. Rather, John writes like the Hebrew prophets wrote, where he would take up an idea and he'd consider it from an angle, he'd set it down and he'd come back to another idea only to return to the first idea again, a kind of circular way of thinking about the gospel and thinking about the truth that he wanted to communicate. And so in some ways, it is repetitious. In some ways, it can be confusing to read First John. But I'd like to compare it to... Uh, this mountain. There's a mountain in China that has a road that leads to the summit. And if you look at that road from a satellite view or on a map, it looks like a snake laid out on, on, the, uh, on the earth, winding its way with 99 hairpin turns. You turn 180 degrees backward and forward and backward again. And I imagine that driving up that mountain must leave a person feeling a little bit confused because you leave a scene only to turn around and return to it. You might, be think, you might think as you make that drive, haven't I been here before? How am I going to ascend this mountain and achieve the summit? And yet it's such a great and grand mountain that you can't get there in a straight path, but you have to take this right winding road and along the way you see the mountain from various perspectives. And in a similar way, John writes this letter to communicate the truth of the gospel, to reassure this church that the gospel is true and can be trusted. But he circles around and he takes up ideas one after another and putting it down and then considering something together. And even at the outset of this letter, it's like beginning a journey in a traffic circle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, that whole statement leaves us wanting to know, what is that that you're talking about, John? And so it will be helpful if at the very beginning we state the subject very clearly. What is John driving at? He says concerning the word of life. His subject is the word of life. But if you say, well, that's as clear as mud, we need to drive down a little bit more and see what does John mean when he refers to the word of life as his subject. Now, you might be familiar with uh, this idea, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, and you know that the question is not, what is the word of life, but who? Who is the word of life? But even still, you realize that it's, it is a bit confusing. It is a bit abstract. You ask, why is it that John would refer to Jesus as the word? Why would he speak about Christ in this way? You think back to the Gospel of John, which I understand, Lord willing, you're going to be uh, begin a sermon series going through the Gospel of John. And there John begins his Gospel in a very similar way, saying, 
in the beginning was the Word. And as you read on, you see that this Word is the one who John the Baptist spoke about. This Word is the one who became flesh, who lived in our midst. You realize that when John uses this metaphor of the Word, he is speaking about Christ. You still wonder why. Why would he refer to him as the Word? Our answer comes to us in the book of Hebrews. At the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, the author writes, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. In other words, John is looking back and thinking about the fact that God has communicated himself, has revealed himself over the millennia to his people through the prophetic word. That word was spoken and that word was written and yet through it, God was making himself known. But all of that pointed to a time in the fullness of time when God would make himself known not in words written on a page but by sending his own son, the eternal son of God, to take on flesh and to live among us. And because through him, God reveals himself to us, it is right and proper that John should refer to Jesus as the Word. The Word of God who was and is, who has always been. But he doesn't only speak about him as the Word. Here he speaks about him as the Word of life. Because he's not only God's self-revelation, but he's a revelation with an effect, with a profound impact on our lives. Through him, God has made known to us the way in which we might know him and have life with him forever. Through the revealed Son, through Christ Jesus, through faith in him, that is, we can find eternal life. And so John, in this letter at the very end, states his reason for writing it. He's writing it to a church so that they might know. Those who believed in the Christ might know that they have eternal life. So he calls us to reaffirm our commitment, to remember the reason why when we first received the word, we received it with joy. When we first received the testimony concerning Christ, we received it with confidence. Not just that we knew something in our heads, but we had received a message that would lead us to life eternal. So John refers to him as the word of life, but he's speaking clearly about Christ Jesus. But you might be left wondering, well, how can we know that what he says about Jesus is true? If you've engaged with any kind of scholarly literature on the subject, you know that in secular scholarship, they often challenge the, uh, the Gospels and the testimony in the Gospels. They say that it wasn't really recorded uh, from eyewitnesses. It wasn't really the testimony of eyewitnesses, but it was a tradition passed down over centuries, changed and adapted over time. There's not really any evidentiary basis for that claim. It's a, more of a hypothesis, but it's become, come to be accepted in the secular um, universities by a lot of scholars. And yet, what John is showing us is that, this, that, that he and the other apostles claim, claim very clearly that their testimony is rooted in eyewitness testimony. It's not simply... Um, something that they made up. It's something that they saw, as, as Steve pointed out to the little ones earlier. It's something that they heard. It's something that they, so, someone who they touched. And so when they testify and they bear witness, 
they point to Christ as someone who they knew. And, someone, and, and they call upon us to receive their testimony as credible. So this morning what I want to show you is that their testimony is credible from 1 John, from these words that he claims, and also looking at some other passages. I want to show you that it is a testimony that you can trust. I want to give you three reasons why you can trust this testimony. But before we look at the eyewitness nature of that testimony, I want you to see its eternal nature. I want you to see its enduring nature. John began by saying, that which was from the beginning. Just as in his gospel he begins, in the beginning was the word of God. So though Jesus lived at a time in history, and he was made known and became incarnate during a period of 33 years or so, nevertheless, he is the one who is eternal, who is from the beginning, who was and is and will always be. He is the one through whom all things were created. And this testimony concerning him, therefore, concerns someone who is eternal and therefore always true. I put that before you because I want you to consider it in comparison to worldly philosophies. There was a time I can remember about 20 years ago when a lot of evangelical scholars were very concerned about something called the emergent church. They wrote books about it. They spoke about it at conferences. They worried that the emergent church was going to lead Christians in the evangelical community away from an embrace of the gospel, lead them into a more relativistic way of thinking. And you know what you don't really ever hear about anymore? is the emergent church. The people who led that movement are still around. They've largely joined other movements, but that movement just fizzled out. It's not really having any impact. And so it is, we can go back through history and look at all kinds of different movements throughout history, all kinds of different philosophies. You take a course in philosophy and you learn about all the isms, and what can you say about all of them? They go away. People stop believing them. People replace them with something else. Even John wrote to a church that was dealing with Greek philosophies that we don't even know about. We don't even hear about. So John doesn't really waste any time trying to lay out for us what it is that the false teachers actually believed. Because like the world, they and their message was passing away. But John testified concerning one who was from the beginning, who is eternal, and that testimony is an enduring testimony. This morning, from Isaiah 40, we heard read, the word of the Lord endures. The people are like grass. We fade away. Our lives are just a vapor. But God's word endures forever. Or think of Psalm 18, verse 30, when David testifies that the word of the Lord proves true. There are times in our lives when the word of the Lord is challenged, when we're challenged to doubt that it's true. Just like David in his own experience was challenged to doubt that God would fulfill his promises to him. But he spoke those words, he wrote those words after God exalted him to the throne as a confession that in his own life he saw the word of the Lord proves true. And so we can say likewise in our own lives as we see God's word fulfilled and enduring, the word of the Lord proves true. Worldly philosophies pass away, but God's word endures forever because it concerns the one who is from the beginning. 
Well, not only can we trust this message because it's concerning one who is eternal and it's an enduring message. As I said earlier, we can trust it because it's based in credible eyewitness testimony. Look at the sensory words that John uses. He speaks about the word of life as that which we have seen, that which we have touched, that which we have heard, and that which we've looked upon. He's not only repeating himself when he says we've looked upon him, but he's saying uh, the sense is that we've not only seen him, but we've seen him and understood his significance. And at, the, his, at that time, there would have been people who would have said, well, sure, you saw him, but it was just an apparition. It was a, it was a vision. Maybe he lived his life and he died, and you just saw a vision of a resurrected person. John says, no, we touched him. You think of what Jesus said when he appeared to Thomas, and Thomas, who doubted, he said, touch my hands and my side. See that I am risen. It was a physical eyewitness testimony. These 12 apostles walked with him for three years. They saw his life from the time he was baptized by John the Baptist to the time he died and rose again. And they testified concerning that which they had seen. But their testimony, was it was not just the twelve. There were hundreds of men and women who bore witness to Christ, who saw him in his life, who saw him in his suffering, who saw him risen. Even as we heard read from the Gospel of Luke, that account of two men who weren't among the twelve on that road to Emmaus and who saw the risen Christ. They were witnesses and they testified concerning what they had seen and heard and looked upon and touched concerning the word of life. In fact, all of the Gospels are written from this perspective. In that passage again that we heard read from Luke 24, Luke makes specific mention of Clopas as one of the men on the road, and you might wonder, why didn't he mention the other, other disciple? Why only Clopas? And Richard Balkum in his incredible work, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, shows that what Luke was doing for that first century audience was indicating who it was that they knew that they could go to and ask, did this really happen? In other words, the people who received Luke's gospel at first would have known Clopas and could have gone to Clopas and say, hey, did this happen, Clopas? And Clopas would have affirmed what he had seen. In other words, Luke was citing his sources. He was telling us who shared the account with him. The Gospels are based in eyewitness testimony, and that's the claim that Luke gives at the very beginning of his Gospel, that he has gathered all of these things from the many eyewitnesses who saw Jesus, who witnessed his life. Likewise, Peter, in his, first, in his second letter, when he argues that we didn't devise cleverly devised myths, but we, he says that we were eyewitnesses, and he speaks about bearing witness to Jesus being transfigured on the mountain. He says, I saw his glory. I was an eyewitness of his glory. And Paul also affirms this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he's arguing for the truth of the resurrection. He says, he first appeared to the 12 and then he appeared to more than 500 people, many of whom are still alive. All of those claims are stupendous and would have been easily disproven if they were false. And while 2,000 years on, we can't consult those early witnesses. We can look at this multitude of witnesses and trust their testimony. 
I want you to consider the force of this. Think back to the Old Testament and God's law and how he established a rule that there must be witnesses, multiple witnesses, to establish charges against a person. In the book of Deuteronomy, in order to uh, execute a person, to execute corporal punishment, you had to establish a charge on the basis of two or three witnesses at least. Similarly, in Leviticus, we read in Leviticus 5.1 that if a person was called to testify concerning a public matter and had witnessed it, that he was required to bear witness concerning what he had seen. In the same vein, in the Ten Commandments, we read that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Eyewitness testimony was valued supremely in their legal system. And the same continues in the new covenant in the church. As Jesus in Matthew 18 instructs his disciples, if you have a charge against someone and he won't hear you person to person, you get two or three witnesses. Or Paul instructs Timothy saying that don't receive a charge against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. One witness may not be credible. But a multitude of witnesses testifying consistently concerning something is credible even in our own day in a court of law. There may be no more powerful tool that a lawyer can bring to bear in furthering her case before a court and before a jury. We should value the eyewitness testimony that we've received from the apostles and from the many people who followed Jesus in that first generation. And that should give us confidence that the message we've received is true. Well, thirdly, I want to emphasize this fact of the, uh, the testimony, the credibility of the witnesses. And I don't just want to look at the fact that they lived their life with Jesus, but I want to look at their motive. Just like a lawyer in cross-examining a witness might seek to establish that they have ulterior motives. When we look at what John writes, we see that his motive is not self-serving, but his motive is for the good of the church to which he writes. He says, that which we have seen, in verse 3, and heard, we, we proclaim also to you. And here's the reason. So that, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. See, the false teachers, if we can discern anything about what they were teaching, they were teaching a, uh, an exclusive gospel. They were teaching a, a message that excluded those who didn't have some kind of special knowledge that they possessed or, or claimed to possess. They didn't really care about the people they were trying to lead astray. They didn't really love them. They mistreated them. They were cruel to them. But through, over and over again, as we read through John's letter, we see his love and affection for the church as he writes to them. He refers to them with terms of endearment. My little children, he says again and again. Beloved, he calls them. And here he writes to them that the reason he and the other apostles have proclaimed this message is not to exalt themselves as the ones who had enjoyed special access to Jesus, but to invite them into the same fellowship they enjoyed. We look at the apostles and we rightly regard them as the men who God commissioned, who Christ commissioned to found his church. And yet they did not learn from Jesus to exalt themselves, but they learned 
to humble themselves as servants. They learned to care for, for others. And they didn't see themselves as occupying a place that no one else could have. But rather they invited the churches. They invited these new Christians. And they invite us into the same fellowship they enjoy. It's a fellowship with one another. But it's also a fellowship with God. With the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he says, indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And John doesn't look at this as a a sad thing for him, that he has to share this fellowship, but he looks at this as a source of joy. In fact, he looks at it as the thing that will complete his joy. We are writing these things, he says, so that our joy may be complete. So when we think about the motive of John, and we read the other letters of the apostles, we see that they share the same motive, a motive of, of invitation, a motive of love, a motive of service, that they care for the well-being of the churches to whom they write, and they care for us, who centuries later have received the same message that they proclaimed. We can know that they are credible. They are credible because they walked with Christ. They are credible because they care for us. They love us with the love that Christ had for us. And they're credible because they testify concerning one who is eternal, who is from the beginning, and who is made known in the fullness of time. So how do we respond to this? Well, first, we read and receive the testimony that we have from them. We can't see Jesus in his flesh right now. We won't see him in his flesh until he comes again. But we can see him through the scriptures that he has delivered to us. We can look to the Old Testament as those men on the road to Emmaus did with Jesus. And we can see that they testify concerning him. Concerning who he would be. What he would do when he came. We can look to the New Testament and see in the Gospels and see in the letters and see in the book of Revelation and, and all the books of the New Testament, we can see how they testify concerning Christ and who he is. And we ought to read that. We ought to receive it. We ought to hear it from one another and teach it to one another and proclaim it. It's a trustworthy testimony. You can set your life upon it. What else should we do? We ought to focus on truth that we know is certain in the midst of cultural confusion. I mentioned that living in this world can be like living in a whirlwind. You turn on the radio and you hear one song that proclaims a message. You may not even think about it. The tune is just enjoyable. But if you look at the lyrics, you see it's proclaiming a message that's contrary to the word of God. And the very next song is another one that's contrary to the word of God but contradicts the first one. You drive down the road and you see the billboards advertising a kind of life, the good life, the thing that you need to make, you, make yourself whole, to make yourself complete. And you're questioning, you're wondering, is that right? Is that what I should pursue in life? You see friends and neighbors and colleagues going after things that you don't have, that you say, they seem to be happy, that seems to fulfill them. And it's confusing And there's all these contradictory messages being proclaimed in the news, on your favorite TV show, whatever it may be. What do you do to illustrate the right response? Think about what you would do if you were on a ship during a storm. 
I was in the Navy, and I was in the Tasmanian Sea uh, with the Australian Navy, and there's very rough seas, and I remember feeling queasy, and I needed to throw up. And one of the more seasoned sailors said to me, what you need to do is go out on the deck and look at the horizon, because the horizon's not going to change. It stays fixed. And you know what? He was right. I went out, and I looked at the horizon, and I focused on it, and my stomach stopped feeling queasy. It's the same idea. Think about Peter. When he went to the Lord, walking on the water to them, to to the disciples, he said, Lord, let me walk on the water too. And he did. And then he heard the sound of the wind and the waves, and he began to sink. He took his eyes off the one who was solid and steady and in control and saw the wind and the waves and thought, what can I do? John wrote this letter to call Christians to turn their attention back to the one we know is true, the one who can be the foundation for all that we live and do and believe, to the Christ, to the word of life. And so in a culture culture full of confusion, fix your eyes on him through his word, the preaching and teaching and reading of his word. And thirdly, seek joyful fellowship and invite others into that fellowship. Not every one of us has the courage to stand on our convictions when everyone is arrayed against us. But God in his wisdom has given us one another to encourage each other, to encourage each other to remain faithful to Christ. And so when the culture seeks to distract us, or when the world opposes us, or would even persecute us, We know that in the context of a local church, we have a fellowship with other believers who believe likewise, who are committed likewise. And we can draw strength from that fellowship. We can find joy in that fellowship. We can find courage in a multitude of witnesses who can bear witness to what the Lord has done in our lives. And so seek that joyful fellowship and invite others into that fellowship. Well, in conclusion, we're often told that faith is merely blind. Some will cynically say that, even worse, it's just wishful thinking. But I hope you see that faith is not merely blind. Indeed, we don't see what God will do. We don't see the fulfillment of his promises. And so, in that regard, faith is not sight. But our faith is founded upon things that were seen and witnessed and testified to. In other words, our faith is credible. It's based on a credible witness. So we don't need to think that we have no basis on which to stand. We can trust the word that we've received. We can trust the word that we have before us. We can trust that God is true and his word always proves true. Let us go with him with joy and hope and confidence for he is our haven in the midst of the storm. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the word of life, who you sent into the world, who you made a man so that he might walk among us, so that he might experience the sorrows, the sufferings, and the temptations we experience, yet he himself without sin, so that he might become a faithful high priest who can deal with us with uh, wisdom and with uh, kindness and gentleness, who can intercede on our behalf, 
because he's gone through all that we go through, yet without sin. I thank you that you have given us such a clear witness that we can hope on, that we can trust. We are not left with uncertainty, but certainty. Give us conviction and confidence as we consider your word, O Lord. Write these words on our heart and in our minds that we might go from here as faithful witnesses to what you've done in our lives. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.